Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to John 4. And uh, we are going to be looking at uh, one of the all-time great texts in the Bible on worship. This is uh, the second part in our series. And this is going to be the first part of a two-part section that we're going to be looking at, John chapter 4. In the evangelical churches in America today... We are suffering from great imbalances in worship. People seem to be suffering from one of two extremes. There's a huge movement, often referred to as the seeker-sensitive movement, which is doing their best to make the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense something that is not a stone of stumbling and not a rock of offense. They want to make the Savior... to a person who is indifferent to sin and who is not going to be coming back and flaming glory, dealing out retribution who, to those who will not repent and turn to him. In those churches, worship has been substituted by very worldly entertainment, um, seems to mimic what we see in the world today, and there's a lot of uh, drama and skits and you know, sometimes even unsaved, paid musicians uh, to try and attract um, people into the church who don't know Christ. Of course, the gospel is never preached, and so they are just entertained, and they leave thinking, you know, that's like a free concert. That was kind of fun. They might come back again. But those churches have really gone overboard by appealing to unbelievers and the lusts of their flesh. But there's another side of the spectrum on the far other side, which is cold orthodoxy. These would be those churches who are very formal, very solemn. You go there, maybe a reformed church that, you know, you get there right on time. You come in, you sit down, a guy comes in, call to worship, stand up, Apostles' Creed, three hymns, half hour sermon, go home. And those people go through the motions and their goal is to continue to do things like they've always done them. You ever try and change anything, then there is a church split. Because we have always done it that way. And a lot of times people in those churches are totally disengaged in their mind. They're just going through the motions. While the people on the other side of the spectrum are just going through the emotions. And we have these two extremes that are happening in the churches today. But the scriptures are very clear about the kind of worship that pleases God. The word of God tells us what God wants, exactly what God wants. The word of God is not short or slack in how we should praise and worship him. And that is why we are taking some time to look at this whole idea of worship. Last week, we did a big historical survey of worship, showing the roots of why we organize our services the way we do, why a lot of churches are built the way they are built, why we have the parts of worship that we do. A lot of it's patterned after the synagogues, and Jesus uh, being a Jew, and the apostles are being Jews, and the first converts being Jews. Uh, 
many, much of the instruction in the New Testament is patterned directly after the Jewish synagogue. So we learned that. We also traced the whole um, history of praising God through the scriptures. We saw way back in Genesis where where um, God is first praised and kind of trace that through, showing how God was praised in song and, and praised in different ways. And really the height of praise came during the reign of David, who was the sweet psalmist of Israel and wrote many of the inspired psalms and those inspired psalms we have today in our Bible. And we sing them. And they are great songs of just passion and praise. And it was during David's time that worship, uh, just as a, a form of praise with music and song and instruments, all of those things um, really came to their height and have continued through the Jewish synagogue and into the church today. And we learned that praising God in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs has a purpose. And it's not to make us feel good. We do not try and sing songs that will entertain you. I'm sorry to tell you that if you haven't figured it out. We are trying to sing songs that praise God, that focus on God. We learn from Colossians chapter 3 that one of the primary or two of the primary purposes of praising God, besides just praising Him directly, is to teach and admonish the saints. So that means that the songs we sing must have truth which both teaches and admonishes us in the truth of God's word. So that music in the church and praise in the church is not to entertain. It's not about us getting what we want. It is about God getting what he wants and he wants praise and he wants us to be admonished and instructed in the truth. This morning... And next week, we are going to look at a very key text in the book of John, John chapter 4. And this text is a very well-known story to most of us. I think uh, most of us who have been Christians a while will know about Jesus and the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. Now, in order to to understand this text and the impact of um, its meaning, you really need to understand quite a bit of background. And so this morning, I'm going to go through more background than usual, but I think you will find it interesting, and it will make this, this whole text just come alive to you. First, you need to remember that the Jews and Samaritans had big problems with each other, major prejudice, major hatred towards each other, major dislike. They did not like each other. And it all started way back in 721 B.C. when Sargon, the Assyrian Empire, came down, emperor, came down and attacked um, the ten northern tribes. Remember, after Solomon's reign, uh, Israel was one nation, but then it split into two nations, the ten tribes in the north and Judea, the southern kingdom in the south. And those ten tribes were, in the words of Jeremiah, plowed under by the Assyrian king Sargon. Sargon took all the Jews captive, or killed them, and then he repopulated Samaria with people from other nations that he had conquered. And that was kind of a common practice, because if you took people out of their familiar homeland and territory and transplanted them, then they wouldn't be so quick to rise up and rebel, because they would be an unfamiliar territory. And that's exactly what he did. 
Later in 605 BC, when the southern kingdom of Judah was taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, all the nobles were were taken captive, like Daniel and his three friends as examples. And then in two other deportations, several years apart, they were taken, all the people, all the skilled craftsmen, the noblemen, the rich people, and there were some people who were left, and those are the real down and outers, the transients, the poor people, people who weren't even worth taking for slaves because they weren't even worth the food to take them away. Some people hid, some people escaped. And so Jerusalem was left in rubble, burnt to the ground, destroyed by Babylon. And all these people were taken captive to Babylon. Well, then what happened is those Jews who lived in the area of Jerusalem who hid or were worthless, according to the Babylonians, then intermarried with the people that were imported into Samaria by Sargon. And so some of them um, were Jews and the Jews intermarried, so they became partially Jewish. Well, when... Cyrus decreed that the Jews could return and rebuild Jerusalem and the temple and the whole worship system there. Many of the Jews returned. And we know that uh, the key players there were Nehemiah, who was the king's uh, cupbearer, who helped rebuild the walls. Ezra, who helped rebuild the temple and and start a spiritual revival. The prophets um, Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi and uh, Zerubbabel and uh, Joshua the high priest, all of these men, the key figures we've probably heard about, all were there at the time to help get Jerusalem rebuilt. But if you know the story, the, uh, a conflict started between the Samaritans and the Jews who had intermarried with them because They couldn't show their ancestry. Some of the people who were there in the land all the time said, Hey, hey, we'll help you. We'll help you rebuild the wall. We'll help you rebuild the temple. And they said, Sorry, you can't. Because you can't trace your ancestry back. You've defiled yourself. You can't help us. Well, that made them mad. And if you remember, the men like Sam Ballot and Tobiah and Geshem uh, did everything they, they could to try and dissuade the Jews. They, they threatened war. They intimidated them. They sent letters to the, the Medo-Persian king saying, they're, they're going to rebel, they're going to rebel. And so they had to keep stopping the work and there was all this opposition. The hatred was intensified when the grandson of the Jewish high priest married Sanballat's daughter and was expelled from Jerusalem. Sanballat then, in rebellion and spite, built an alternate temple that people could worship on Mount Gerizim. While they were building the Jerusalem one, he said, okay, we'll build one on Gerizim. Now you're supposed to come worship here. So there was competing temples. Samaria then became a place for malcontent, disgruntled Jews to flee. That there was a Jew who, who was in the area of Judea and Jerusalem, and that person didn't like what was going on there, and was angry because of the political situation or whatever. He would often get mad and flee to Samaria, intermarry with the Samaritans, and pretty soon Samaria became known as the, the place of, uh, you know, traitors, dogs, uh, you know, half-breed apostate Jews. Well, in 109 B.C., the Samaritan temple was destroyed by a zealous Jew named John Hyrcanus. Hyrcanus was the son of Simon Maccabeus, 
the Maccabean revolt. And not only did John Hyrcanus destroy the, revive, the um, rival Samaritan temple in Gerizim, he also forced a certain group of people there to convert to Judaism, the Idumeans. Among the Idumeans was a certain family, the Herods. And later, in all those Herods mentioned in the New Testament, they were from the Herod family that were forced to convert to Judaism. That is why the Jews hated the Herods. They hated them and they would not accept Herod, who loved to be called king of the Jews, because his family was forced to be Jewish and they didn't do it willingly. And he wasn't really of Jewish descent. The Samaritans, on the other hand, despised Herod because he claimed to be Jewish and he wanted to be king of the Jews. And Herod wanted to try and and, uh, win the favor of both the Jews and the Samaritans. And so he did many building projects for the Jews. And he offered to do a building project for the Samaritans. He said, I'll tell you what, I will rebuild your temple in Gerizim. Which of course made the Jews hate him more because they didn't want a rival temple. The Samaritans so loathed Herod that they didn't want to worship in the temple he was promising to build them, but they didn't say anything. They let him build the temple, and then to despise him, they never set foot in it. Now, the Samaritans then became such haters of the Jews, they did everything they could to try and... Get back at them. For instance, in 6 AD, during one of the pilgrim feasts, the pilgrim feasts are the feasts where the required in the law of Moses, where people came from all over the Mediterranean basin, all the Jews from all the area would travel, sometimes weeks and weeks at great expense, at great pains, to come to Jerusalem. And it was during one of these feasts that they decided to defile the temple. When all these people came, there were so many people who wanted to worship at the temple, they would leave the temple open until midnight. And so all these people were coming, and on the first day of the festive week, they came into the temple, scattered around human bones, which according to the law of Moses, made the temple unclean for seven days. So that year, none of the people who came on a pilgrim feast were able to worship during that feast in the temple. No one was able to. And you can imagine how that made the Jews feel towards the Samaritans. By the time Jesus started ministering in 33 AD and after, the hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans was just at its pinnacle. It's at its height. And you need to understand this before we look at John 4. Many Jews believe that even to set foot on Samaritan soil was a great evil. They would not even accept Samaritan proselytes. If a Samaritan wanted to convert to Judaism, they wouldn't let them. You could be any other kind of Gentile from any other place but Samaria. The Jews prayed that God would show no mercy towards them. And the worst thing you could do as a Jew is call somebody a Samaritan. That was like the worst, most vulgar term you could use to slam somebody. 
As a matter of fact, in John chapter 8, verse 48, right after Jesus exposes the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, they're so angry at him, this is what they say. Do we not rightly say that you are a a Samaritan and have a demon? Thinking, well, that doesn't sound bad. Well, it was then. That was bad. You know, you... You're a Samaritan, and not only that, you're a demon-possessed one. That was the worst thing they could think. That was that was the most vulgar, attacking statement they could level against Jesus. And knowing this conflict, knowing the animosity between the Jews and Samaritans helps us understand certain scriptures in the New Testament. For instance, the parable of the good Samaritan. You ever thought about that? Where Jesus takes the most despised person in the eyes of the Jews and he makes him the hero. Then he takes the most honored people in the sight of the Jews, the Pharisees and the Levites, and makes them the despised ones. He did that on purpose. And when he tells the parable and he's talking to them, he says, who was a neighbor to this man? They won't even say the word Samaritan. They just say, well, the man who helped them. (laughs) So if you have your Bible, open to John 4 and follow along and keep the things that I have just told you in mind. Because everybody in this story knows what I just told you. John 4.1 Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that John was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again to Galilee. So he's leaving from Judea, which is in the south, and then if you go up straight north, you get into the region of Galilee, and in between Galilee and Judea is Samaria. Okay, so that's what Jesus is doing. Also keep in mind this, that in the preceding chapter, in chapter 3, remember that famous verse most of us know, John 3.16, speaking to Nicodemus, Nicodemus came to him at night, why? Because the, the Pharisees had rejected Jesus, the Jews were for the most part rejecting Jesus, Nicodemus thinks Jesus might be the guy, sneaks to him at night and says, well, you know, we know, Rabbi, that you are from God. And he has this discussion about being born again. And remember what Jesus said, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And then in that statement right there, And actually, in verse 17, where he says, For God did not send his Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him, Jesus is hinting to the fact that soon there is going to come a time when salvation is not going to be just for the Jews. It's going to be for whosoever in the world. And so now what's interesting is in John 4, John has placed his gospel right after these statements of a kind of universal outreach to people. He is saying, listen, this is an example of what Jesus was saying. Jesus is now going to some 
non-Jewish people to evangelize them. So, look again at the text. Notice, verse 4 says, and he had to pass through Samaria. Now, he didn't have to pass through Samaria. I mean, it was the Father's will, so that's why he had to. But most Jews, because they would not want to set their foot on Jewish or Samaritan soil, being a Jew, because they thought it would give them, you know, cooties and make them unclean, they would go... It was a 40-mile trek from Jerusalem to Galilee, and that was if they went through Samaria. But they would go 20 extra miles down the Jordan Rift to the Dead Sea, cross the Jordan, go up on the other side of the Jordan, cross over the Jordan, go 20 miles up. So it would be 20 miles, 20 miles, plus 40 miles in between, and they would travel 80 miles, twice the distance, so they wouldn't have to touch Samaritan soil. Now, when you think about the fact that the Jordan Rift and the area of the Dead Sea is the lowest place in the earth and the temperatures there are hotter than any place else, 115 in the winter. And how would you like to walk 80 miles in temperature like that to spend two full hard extra days of walking just so you don't have to set your foot on a certain piece of dirt? It shows you the degree of hatred. But Jesus, the text says, he had to pass through Samaria. And we're going to find out why. He's got some evangelization to do. Jesus knows his time on earth is short. He knows he can't hold prejudice against people who are lost and need him. And so he's going through Samaria. Look at verse 5. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar. Near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his sons, Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. And it was about the sixth hour. That's about 6 p.m. in the evening. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now think about what is happening here. About everything you know now about the conflict between the Jews and Samaritans. Jesus goes to Samaria. Of the first no-no. Then he talks to a Samarian. The second no-no. Then he talks to a Samaritan woman. A woman. Most Jews would never even touch anything that a Gentile touched, let alone speak to a woman, a foreign woman, a foreign Samaritan woman, and as we shall find out, an immoral foreign Samaritan woman. But that's exactly what Jesus does. Major taboo in that culture. Look at verse 9. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. This is amazing. The Samaritan woman is asked by Jesus, the Messiah, for a drink of water. And he's not worried. He's not, he doesn't have any prejudice towards her. He does not worry that he's going to give him some sort of cooties. But John does, does insert in there, listen. You need to know that Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Which is an interesting statement since Jesus is dealing with the Samaritan. Look at verse 10. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. 
This is so beautiful. It's so incredible. Jesus is offering salvation to this Samaritan woman. He's saying, hey, if you knew who I am, you would ask me and I would be able to give you some living water. Now, living water was a term used in Jeremiah 2.13 and Jeremiah 17.13 of God. He was the living water that was rejected by Israel. And Jesus is drawing from this metaphor and he's saying, if you knew that I was the Messiah, you would be asking me and I would give you myself salvation. Look at verse 11. She said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? The Samaritan woman at this point does not understand what Jesus is talking about. She's pretty clueless here. She's saying, you know, listen, um, I mean, you have a bigger well or, you know, I mean, where are you going to get this water, this living water? She's not quite certain that Jesus is talking about salvation at this point. Look at verse 13 and 14. Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Now think about this. Jesus now has just opened the gates here. He's saying, I have some kind of water that if you receive it, you will never thirst and you will have eternal life, which everybody knew meant salvation. He's offering her salvation. But because he's putting it into this phrase of living water, and probably because she doesn't know what Jeremiah said, she's not quite certain about what he's talking about still. Look at verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. She wants to never thirst again. She likes the idea of having eternal life. She's not quite sure where Jesus is going to get this water, but whatever kind it is, not thirsting, not having to go to the work to come there all the time and to draw water out of the well, which is a heavy burden, and to have salvation sounded good to her. So she just says, well... You know, I don't know where you're going to get it. And I don't know if you think you're better than Jacob, but I want it. Give me this water. But everybody knows that there is one thing that always stands in between salvation and the offer of the gospel, and that is what? Sin. Sin is always the problem. People always have sins in their life that they just don't want to let go. Sins in their life that might be their favorite sin. And sin always keeps us from God. Sin is the wedge that pries us apart from God. And so Jesus goes after the woman's sin. He's piqued her interest with this discussion of living water and eternal life and never thirsting again. And she says, I want it. And so the first thing that has to happen is she needs to face her sin, repent of her sin, turn from her sin, and receive Christ. And notice what Jesus says in verse 16. He said to her, go, call your husband and come here. 
the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you have correctly said you have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. A bummer. Here's this woman speaking to the stranger. She wants living water. And all of a sudden, all of her sin, her, the major sin in her life, her immorality, she's shacking up with another guy. It's just, whoa. Oh. She has had five husbands. And who knows whether she has divorced them or they've divorced her or been widowed or a combination. But the big thing in her life now is she is in a immoral relationship and she knows it. And Jesus knows it. And now she knows Jesus knows it. Then the woman said, look at verse 19. The woman said, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Well, no kidding. (laughs) She got that right. Jesus was the prophet who was prophesied in Deuteronomy 18, the Messiah. And he tells her. He is the Messiah, if you read down in verses 25 and 26. So she is convicted to the core. She knows that he knows that she's a sinner. And how would you feel if you were that woman? I mean, here you are, you're talking with some stranger. All you're doing is getting some water. He starts talking to you about living water. You're amazed he's a Jew even talking to you. And that he would even ask you for water. And then he offers you this living water thing. Tells you you can receive it and never thirst again. That he's got it. And that it will give you eternal life. And you say, hey, give me this water. And then he says, oh, let's talk about your sin. Well, what would you do? You'd change the subject. That's what she does. That's exactly what she does. Look at the text again. She changes the subject. Look at verse 20. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. What does that have to do with her shacking up with this guy? Do you see that? It's like, you know, a right angle. He says, you know, let's talk about your husbands and your immorality. You know, there's a big uh, discussion these days about where the best place is to worship. she's, She's avoiding him. She's convicted. She takes a right turn. And what's interesting is she goes to the biggest conflict of the day between the Jews and the Samaritans. The Samaritans believe that Gerizim was the place to worship. The Jews, Jerusalem. So she throws that out to Jesus, hoping that he will jump on that instead of focus on her sin. And then she'll be off the spotlight. And Jesus is so gracious so kind to her, he says, okay, let's talk about worship. And he gives us here, in these verses, verses 21 to 24, some of the best, most succinct and clear verses on how we are to worship found in all the Bible. So look at verse 21. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, An hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit 
and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Now, from this section, there are seven major points or goodies we can draw out of here. Let me just point them out, and then we'll focus on the one main one. Jesus, first of all, says, soon you won't be worshiping the Father on Gerizim or on Mount Jerusalem, the mount of the, where the temple was. In other words, worship is not about location. That's what Jesus tells us here. Secondly, Jesus tells her plainly, you don't know the God you think you worship. In other words, you are worshiping a false God. Third, Jesus says salvation is from the Jews, implied not from the Samaritans. Fourth, Jesus says the Father is looking for true worshipers as opposed to false ones. Jesus says a true worshiper worships in spirit and truth. Six, Jesus says the Father is seeking Seeking true worshipers to worship him. Seven, when Jesus gives the reason why only true worshipers are those who worship in spirit and truth, he says it is because the God is spirit, and because he is spirit, he is not material. He wants immaterial spiritual worship. So everything we have said now is background to our one-point sermon, which is this. You must worship In spirit. In verse 23, Jesus clearly says, The Father is seeking those who will worship him in spirit. In verse 24, he even makes it more emphatic when he says, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit. And if you are going to worship God in a way that is acceptable to him, it must be in spirit. Now, but what does that mean? I mean, what does that mean? That is the big question, isn't it? Does it mean that you have to worship God in the power of the Holy Spirit? Is the word spirit here an abbreviation for Holy Spirit? You must worship God in Holy Spirit in truth? Well, you need to do that. Worship Him in the power of the Holy Spirit. You need to be walking in the Spirit and filled with the Spirit when you worship. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. Secondly, could Jesus be saying that you can't worship God in your physical body, only in some spiritual state, an out-of-body, you know, reality? No, he's not saying that either. Jesus is talking about worshiping God from the real you, the real part of you. What is you? You know, if you have a glass of milk and... That hard part on the outside, is that the milk? No. The milk's the inside part. That's just a container for the milk. Now, if you were to walk out here and some zealous person wanting to go to lunch were to run you over and kill you, and you were laying there and we were all gathered around going, oh, poor so-and-so. Now, would that be you on the ground? No. That's the container. That's the container. And you need to realize, especially if you're ever planning on dying. <laughs> Tell the people who might be burying you, you know, what you would like. You go to funerals where they have just incredibly elaborate, you know, coffins. And they tell people, well, you know, this is, a, we put them into a waterproof vault. 
you know, with a rubber gasket into a waterproof airtight casket. It's like, why? People go, well, I don't know any worms getting in on me. But that's not you in there. And man, I'm telling you, even if it isn't airtight, in a couple of weeks, it's bad in there. I mean, it's, it's nasty. It's not a pretty sight in there. That's your, you go back to dust. That's not you. I mean, let's say you got an accident and lost an arm. Would, would you be gone? No. What's you is the spirit part. Your thinking, your emotions, your attention, your, your, your intentions, your volition, your will, your desires, your passions. That is the real you. The body is nothing more than a container. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. It's the earthen vessels. The outer man is decaying, but the inner man, the spirit, is being renewed day by day. And so when Jesus says here, I want you to worship in spirit, what he's saying is, I want you to worship with you. The real you, your thoughts, your mind, your heart. In 2 Corinthians 7, 1, Paul says to the Corinthians, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. What is he asking for? Don't do anything physically that's wrong, and don't do anything internally that's wrong. Cleanse yourself on the outside and the inside. In Colossians 2, 5, Paul says, For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. What was Paul saying? Was Paul saying, well, even though I'm away from you in my physical body, I want you to know I'm having a telepathic, uh, you know, transfer to where you're at. No. All he's saying is, is I'm thinking about you. My thoughts are with you. I'm thinking about you. I'm, I'm keeping you in my prayers, in my mind, in my thoughts. I am, quote, with you in prayer. Right now, as a human being, you live on this earth as a combination of flesh and spirit, right? You are part physical and part spiritual. But the spiritual part is the eternal part. And yes, you are going to go in the grave. Yes, your body is going to decay. And there's nothing you can do to stop it. I mean, some people pay an incredible amount of money to have their bodies frozen. You know, you can do that, I guess. Well, it's not going to help. You know, whether you're dumped out at sea in a battle and all the fish eat you and all those other fish are eaten by other fish and pretty soon they catch them and they appear in the store and you eat them. (laughs) Think about that. Soon, though, God in the resurrection gives us new glorified bodies. He takes our spirit, which is in heaven, and then he unites it with our bodies. And now we have an eternal body fit for our eternal spirit. Now we have a temporary body fit for our eternal spirit. But remember, Jesus says to the Samaritan woman, she's wondering what the best place is to worship. What is the best physical location? And Jesus is saying, hey, listen, a time's coming when place won't matter. It won't matter if you're in Jerusalem, and it won't matter to be in Gerizim. As a matter of fact, they're both going to be wiped out, and people are still going to need to worship God. And it's true that every time you worship, you worship in a location. 
Now, you can't help be some, but be somewhere. But location is not the big deal. What the big deal is, is what's going on in here when you're wherever you're at worshiping. What's going on in your heart, in your mind, in your thoughts? Have you ever come to Sunday morning, found somebody sitting in your pew? Right now, some of you are thinking, that person's in my pew. I've sat there for 23 years and I came in, he stole my spot. And you're angry. And if it wasn't for, you know, being seen as the selfish person you are, you might want to go up there and say, hey, clear out. This is my section. This is where I worship on Sunday morning. We feel that way, don't we? We we get used to it. We get our own little spot. You know, some morning we'll have to have ushers seat everybody and just mix them all up. You might get to know some people you never knew before. You ever wondering on when it's time to shake hands, you turn around, uh, there's Joe behind you, the same person you shake hands with every morning. Now, sometimes the Word of God does instruct us to worship with certain forms. And this is clearly true in the Old Testament, right? They, they, you know, all the sacrificial system and the robes and the temple and the altar and the table of showbread and all of that stuff were all physical things and they had to worship in just the right physical way. That's true. But in the New Testament, there's very few physical reg- regulations. God required... In the Old Testament, all sorts of physical forms of worship, and you had to conform to them. But to conform to the physical forms of worship and not to do it from the heart is sin and not worship at all. Although from the outside, it may look like you are worshiping God. And the Jews fell into this over and over again, just like many Christians do. I mean, what happens when you come to church? You come to church, you walk into the door, you shake hands with the greeters, you get a bulletin. You come in, you sit in your pew, you have your Bible, you dress up nice, you look the part, you sit down, you talk a little bit to the same person who always sits to your left. And then music starts, everybody stands, we sing a couple hymns, we sit down, someone prays, stand, sing a couple hymns, sit down. Announcements, offering, stand, sing a hymn, offertory, sermon, go home. That's how we do it. And you may be thinking to yourself, you know, I, I, I know how to worship. I've got this down and you, you, you may have the form of worship down. I mean, you might have your Bible, you might take notes, but I want you to know, if you, not, you are not doing it from inside, if your mind is not focused on God, if you're just on song autopilot, it doesn't work. It's not acceptable. Thomas Watson said, posture in worship is too often imposture. Thomas Adams said, it is poor worship to move our hats and not our hearts. The prophet Amos had to confront Israel about this. Amos was trying to get them out of their spiritual mud hole. And so he has to confront the people because they're doing everything exactly right as far as the form. All the sacrifices, they're doing all the festivals, all the days, all the observances. They got out the law of Moses, they're they're following the regulations, but they aren't doing it from the heart. They're just going through the motions. And this is what God says to them in Amos chapter 5. Turn there, Amos chapter 5. 
You need to see this. You want to know how God thinks about us? Amos chapter 5, verse 21. This is about seven books before Matthew, three books after Daniel. Amos chapter 5, verse 21. God says, I hate. Well, that's an interesting opener. I hate, I reject your festivals. Nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Do you see what's happening here? They... God did, did God require them to celebrate these festivals? Yes. To have a solemn assembly? Yes. Did he inspire the psalms they sang? Yes. God required peace offerings? Yes. Burnt offerings? Yes. To be worshipped in musical instruments? Yes. What's the problem? Their hearts weren't right. They had a spirit problem inside their minds their thoughts were wrong they were either not focused on god and or he says they were not worshiping in righteousness and justice all of their worship according to god he hated it and when you come to worship here on sunday And when you are sitting there and you have your minds disengaged and you're just going through the motion, God hates it. I mean, look at the strong words God uses in this section. I hate, I reject, I do not delight, I will not accept, I will not look at your offerings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen. You get the picture? He hates it. That's how God feels when you come to work. It's a hypocrisy. Or you come to worship and you, you come here and your mind is... It's hypocrisy. Your mind isn't even thinking about God. You're thinking about your pot roast, aren't you? You're thinking about, you know, did I put that on low or it was still on high when I left? You're wondering whether the woman in front of you got her hair cut. You're looking up here and noticing the little snag in the carpet and the little thread hanging down. Your mind is wandering. You're, you're, you're looking at different things, the wires, the instruments, or the ceiling tiles, or the light, or the bulb that's burnt out. You're wondering where you're going to go to lunch afterwards, and who you're going to go, uh, and what are you going to get that day? All the while, you're singing a great anthem of praise. And is your mouth open? Yes. Are the words coming out? Yes. Right pitch? Yes. Right tempo? Yes. But it's not acceptable. You're somewhere else, man. You're disengaged. Your mind isn't on God. You are not worshiping in spirit. You have to engage your passions, your soul, your thoughts on God. Earlier in the service, Greg read from Micah 6, 6 through 8. They were doing the same exact thing. The same thing. And Amos and Micah both are used by God to try and get his people back on track. And here, Amos uses uh, 
an ever-increasing desire to offer sacrifices. That's why he says this. What shall I come to the Lord? This is Micah 6, 6 through 8. What shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings? How about a tender, suckling, yearling calf? Does the Lord take delight? How about if I, we tighten it up here, and a thousand rams? How about if we do 10,000 rivers of oil? How about if I take my firstborn son and offer it up to the Lord? You see, he's heightening. He's, he's saying, oh, how about if I give you this? How about if I give you this? How about if I give you this? How about if I even sacrifice my own child? He's saying, what form of worship can I use to please you? And what does God say? He has told you, oh man, what is good? But what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, which comes from within. To love kindness, which comes from within. And to walk humbly, which comes from within your God. You are to have your heart right. Sure, God wanted them to offer sacrifices according to the law of Moses, but never without an engaged heart that was humble and right and just and kind and loving. We can be so caught up in our forms of worship and so judgmental towards other people who, you know, we look at them and they're just, they're worshiping God and we're going, well, their form isn't quite correct. You know, they just aren't, they aren't doing things exactly like they should. You know, we do it this way. And we will die for our form. All the while, when we're going through our form, which is so familiar to us, we never engage our hearts. And we end up, Sinning against God in our formal worship. There was a man who was touring San Francisco and he related this incident. I was walking across the Golden Gate Bridge when I saw this guy on the bridge about to jump. So I thought I would try to detain him for a moment so I could load some film on my camera to capture the Kodak moment. I shouted to him, don't jump. He turned his head. And how sad it was. You've heard of the elephant man? Oh, he had a head like a horse. And my heart went out to him. And I said, hey, why the long face? He said, all my life people have called me names, cruel names. Names like Flicka, Chesapeake, Trigger, and Silver. I said, ah, don't worry about it, Ed. He said, nobody loves me. My life is empty. I said, come now. Get a hold of yourself. God loves you. He said, how do you know there is a God? I said, of course there is a God. Do you think a bunch of molecules floating around at random and with no reason or rhyme could have the sense of humor to make you look like that? He said, well, I guess you're right. And a tear came to his eye. I said, are you religious? You know, maybe a Christian or a Jew or Hindu or something. He said, I'm a Christian. I said, small world, me too. He says, what are you, Protestant, Catholic, Greek Orthodox? He said, I, I'm a Protestant. I said, that's a coincidence. Me too. What franchise do you belong to? He said, I'm a Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Baptist or Southern? He says, Northern Baptist. I said, me too. 
Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Liberal Baptist? He said, I'm a Northern Conservative Baptist. I said, no kidding, me too. You a Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist or Northern Conservative Reformed Baptist? I said, Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist. I said, so am I. God has ordained this moment. Wait a minute. You a Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes region? Or Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Eastern Region. He said Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region. I said me too. Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1879. Or Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. He said, I'm a Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist of the Great Lake Region Council 1912. And I said, die you heretic. And I pushed him off the bridge. Now, that is a funny story. But it paints a very true picture, doesn't it? We get so into the way we do it in our little group. Oh, I'm a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. I'm a Gentile. I'm a Greek. I'm a this. I'm a that. My parents came from this church. We came from this heritage. Listen, it doesn't matter if you aren't worshiping in spirit and truth. It doesn't matter. Location doesn't matter. Race doesn't matter. What matters is, is that when you go to worship God, your heart is engaged. That's what matters. God wants your insides to be right. He wants you to have pure motives, pure desires, a right life from within. And then the form, you have freedom in form. Just make sure you're right on the inside. Charles Spurgeon said, It will be humbling and profitable for us to pause a while and see this sad sight. The iniquities of our public worship, its hypocrisy, formality, lukewarmness, and irreverence, wandering of heart, and forgetfulness of God. What a full measure have we there. Our work for the Lord, its emulation, selfishness, carelessness, slackness, unbelief. What a mass of defilement is there. Our private devotions, their laxity, coldness, neglect, sleepiness, and vanity. What a mountain of dead earth is there. If we looked more carefully, we should find this iniquity to be far greater than it appears at first sight. And so it is. We can get so caught up in condemning other people because they're under the same brand or same style or whatever. But I ask you this, are you worshiping God in spirit? When you were singing this morning, were you thinking of other things? David in Psalm 51, 17 said, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. He says, O God, thou will not despise And it's my prayer that as worshipers here, not just on Sunday morning, not just during music, not just during the sermon, not just during the time you're at work or at home, but all the time, you are a worshiper who is thinking about God, who is focused on God, who is dwelling on God, because he seeks true worshipers and he wants you to worship in spirit. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this great text. We can't wait till next week when we get back and look at it some more.
Father, we are so thankful for the Samaritan woman who, upon being confronted about her sin, changed the subject so that Jesus could talk about worship. We thank you for the great truths that are just packed into this small passage. And Father, I just pray that all of us would just make an effort to focus on you when we're praying, when we're singing songs, especially familiar songs with great words. May we not just lip the words and think about something else. Father, when we pray and when we read our Bible, help us not to just go through the motion. Help us to love you and to honor you and to worship you in spirit. Father, we pray this because we know it's your will. In Christ's name, amen.